Well, good evening. Good evening. Everybody ready to study Revelation? Yeah. Me too. Me too. All right. Revelation chapter 1. And let me just warn you, we're not only going to be in Revelation a lot tonight, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews. So you might want to mark the book of Hebrews. Just so happens that a lot of supporting verses for what we're going to be talking about from the book of Revelation just happen to fall in the book of Hebrews. And it's probably no accident either. The book of Hebrews is my favorite book of the Bible, so that might have something to do with it as well. Now you know. One of these minds, I'm going to do a study on the book of Hebrews, because I love that book. Love that book. All right, let's ask the Lord's help tonight, as always. And then I want to just do a quick review uh, from last week. Uh, and then we'll get dive into this week's lesson. Father, we just thank you again for each and every person that come out tonight. Father, just bless them for being here. And just, Lord, we ultimately pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, not me. Father, that he would illuminate our minds and just help us to understand your word. Father, we so desperately want to grow in our relationship with you. And we know that one of the ways we do that is just through coming to a greater understanding of your word of what you've already revealed to us. And uh, Father, we just pray that this would be an uplifting, encouraging, hopeful study in the book of Revelation. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Real quickly, too, for those of you that are new, uh, each week that I teach, it can stand on its own. So don't feel like I've got to be at every Tuesday night Bible study or I'm going to miss something. I mean, certainly there's going to be some maybe loss of continuity in the book of Revelation. But don't come out just because you can't be here every week. Most of us can't be here every week, you know? I'm not usually even here every week. I'm in and out, you know? I'm here, but I'm not here. So don't worry about that, all right? You come out, and God will have something for you that particular week that you can be here. But for a quick review, let's go back, and let's remind ourselves of a few things. First of all, this is a study of revelation. The word means unveiling or disclosure. It is the Greek word apocalypsis that we get the word apocalypse from. It simply means to unveil or disclose something. And we went back to Deuteronomy last week and we saw a verse where the Bible basically says that the secret things belong to God and those that he does choose to reveal to us, he will reveal through his word. And so what that just primarily meant was that even in the study of Revelation, we're not going to learn everything we want to know. God has revealed to us the things that we need to know, but not necessarily everything we want to know. All right, That's true of his, all of his work. All right? God gives us what we need, but not necessarily answering all of our questions. And that will be true in the study of Revelation as well. We also saw last week that the book of Revelation, though many people look at that as a book dealing with prophecy, a book just talking about the end times and all that's going to happen in the future, we saw from the very first verse last week that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And primarily, the book then is about Jesus, the glorified Jesus, the magnificent Jesus, the one who is in all his beauty and splendor, that is the picture that is painted in the book of Revelation. That's why I believe in verse 3, God says, you're going to be blessed if you read and study this book more than any other book. Why? Because it portrays Jesus Christ glorified like no other book in the Bible. All right? Uh, for instance, if we're honest, when we think of Jesus, 
most of us think of Jesus who walked the earth for 33 years. We might even think of Jesus hanging on the cross, dying for our sins, and certainly, especially around communion, when he says, this do in remembrance of me, we think about his sacrifice on the cross. But, but when we think about Jesus, if we're honest, most of us think about Jesus here on earth. The Bible says, but you know what, folks? That's not who he is anymore. Remember, when he ascended up into heaven, he is now at the right hand of God the Father, and the glory that he had before he came to earth, he now has again, and he is the glorified Christ. The reason why we saw that was so important is because how we view Christ is really going to determine you know, how we live our lives and, and how we can make it through life. Because if we have a small God and we have these big problems, then we're not even going to take those problems to God because they're too big for Him. So in other words, you know, depending upon my concept of God and my view of God is going to be maybe sometimes how I get through life. And one of the things that the book of Revelation is reminding us is we've got a great, big, awesome, majestic, magnificent God. And therefore, anything that I go through, He can handle. And that's what the book of Revelation is reminding us of. And we're going to see that throughout our study of the book of Revelation, that Jesus Christ is magnificent. Now, you'll also remember from last week in verse 5, we were reminded that He is the King of the earth. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and He is on the throne. And even though, again, we might look at some of the circumstances of the world and what's going on in the world, we can read the newspaper and see that the world is in turmoil, and sometimes we wonder, God, are you on the throne? And again, the book of Revelation says, yeah, he's on the throne. He's not up there wringing his hands, worrying about what's going on. He's in complete control. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. We also saw then in verse 5, and this is where I wanted to sort of jump off of the, the, tonight, because it was something I wanted to touch on last week and didn't, is that we are his representatives. In verse 5, it says that he has made us a kingdom, and we are his priests. We are his ambassadors, Paul says, 2 Corinthians, to this world. We are his representatives to this world, and we are part of his kingdom. Now again, the book of Revelation is going to get to the point where it describes his literal earthly kingdom that will one day be on earth. But right now, remember when Jesus was before Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, I would fight. But my kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. My kingdom is primarily in the hearts of those who believe and trust in me. And one thing we have to remember again is we're part of that kingdom. And we are part of his kingdom. And, and, and the more we allow Jesus to rule in our lives, the more control and stuff we give him, the more we submit to him as his servants, the more we experience really the kingdom of God within us as well. But the point I wanted to touch on a little bit tonight too was this concept of being a priest. It's primarily an Old Testament thought. You saw priests in the Old Testament before Jesus came. The reason, though, why we are called priests of God today is because, like the Old Testament priests, we are to offer sacrifices. Now, they're not the same sacrifices that the Old Testament priests offered because they offered blood sacrifices and animal sacrifices that pointed to the one ultimate sacrifice, 
which was Jesus Christ, the one who would come, the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. But once Christ came, you remember the temple was split in two. There was no need for animal sacrifices again because they all pointed to Christ. So then what sacrifices do we offer today? Well, let's turn to Hebrews. And turn to Hebrews chapter 10. And let's just look at a few of these tonight. Because again, I want to make this practical. I want to make this something that you and I can take with us and apply to our everyday Christian life. I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 13. And I want to just begin here in verse uh, 12 of Hebrews chapter 13, where he talks about the fact that when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified outside the city of Jerusalem. Why? Because they did not crucify inside the city walls because to be crucified as a criminal was a reproach. And he was bearing our reproach, as we understand from Scripture. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. Therefore, to sanctify the people by his own blood, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus also suffered outside the camp, or the gates, the city walls of Jerusalem. Therefore, we must go out to him then, outside the camp, bearing the abuse he experienced, being willing to suffer for his name. For here we have no lasting city, we seek the city that is to come. In other words, this is not our final home. Our home is in heaven. Now, here's the point I want to make about these sacrifices. Through him then, verse thir- chapter 13, verse 15, through Jesus then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, acknowledging his name. And do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. Notice, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. We are priests because we offer sacrifices. They're not animal sacrifices anymore. They're not blood sacrifices. They don't need to be, but they are the sacrifices of praise. They are the sacrifices of doing good and sharing. And the Bible says with such sacrifices, God is pleased. I also want to point out that isn't it true that many times it truly is a sacrifice of praise in the sense that, wow, Whether we want to admit it or not, some days it's hard to praise God. Not because he's not worthy, but a lot of times we get drugged down by what we're going through in the circumstances of life. And it's truly a sacrifice to wake up and say, I praise you, God. You know, I praise you. But we saw from the book of Philippians, it's it's not based upon our circumstances. It's based upon who he is. And he's unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, priests... Because we offer sacrifices. And then if you go back to Revelation, you see there then in verse 6, that he has appointed us as a kingdom, as priests, serving his God and Father. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Alright? So, God here just wants to remind us about serving him as priests and offering sacrifices. And let's remember that. You know, tomorrow when we wake up, we've got to make a choice to offer the sacrifice of praise to God. We've got to face tomorrow and say, you know what, God, if you give me an opportunity, whatever opportunity I have to do good and to share, I'm going to do it because you're well pleased with those sacrifices. And I want to be a positive representative in this world in which you've placed me because you're the king. And I have the privilege and you have the privilege of being his representatives to this world. What an awesome privilege that is. Then, of course, we saw in verse 7 the reminder that he's coming back. He is returning. The Bible is always filled with that promise. 
when he ascended up into heaven, you remember the angel told the disciples as they were gone, uh, that the angel said, why are you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who is taken up from you will so come in like manner as you see him go. He's going to come back one day. Jesus even said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. He's coming. And the Bible says, behold, one day he's going to return with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the tribes on the earth will mourn because of him. Because everyone's going to realize, oh my goodness, he was the Lord of glory. He truly was the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then last week we closed with verse 8, looking and being reminded of his all-powerful word. The fact that he calls himself the Alpha and the Omega. The first letter of the Greek alphabet, the last letter of the Greek alphabet, and he ends that verse by saying, all-powerful. And remember, Jesus is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the living Word of God, and He is the powerful Word of God. He spoke this universe into existence. And His all-powerful Word that does so many wonders, and has done so many wonders throughout this world, can work in our lives as well. And that's why I shared, as we ended last week, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know what trials and struggles you're going through. But I know this. I have a God and you have a God that can deal with it and handle it. And his all-powerful word is there to help us through. All right? So take that to the bank. That's something that you can count on, his all-powerful word. Now we come to verse 9. And we'll pick it up here as we begin tonight. And I'm going to just open it up in just a minute for comments or questions. I, John... And again, we acknowledge that we believe this is John the disciple. John the one who laid his head on the chest of Jesus at the Last Supper. John that was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter and James. I, John, your brother and the one who shares with you in the persecution, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony about Jesus. John was exiled to this Roman penal colony on Patmos. He worked the mines. And while he was, you know, taking breaks from working the mines on this Roman penal colony because he was, you know, being, uh, being there, he was, he was there because of the testimony, as he said, for Jesus Christ, that he would write the revelation that God was giving him. And we saw that back in the first couple verses of chapter 1. Now the point I want to make is this. You'll notice that the Bible teaches very clearly that you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, share things in common. And one of the things that John says we share in common is, is being persecuted. You know, the Bible says that all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And John was reminding his readers and to these churches that he was going to send this message to, and he reminds you and I that anytime we are persecuted and we are suffering for the cause of Christ and for the name of Jesus Christ, that we share a common bond with those who have suffered in the past, those who are suffering now. I mean, you and I, I don't know how much you keep up on it, but there's like websites and things out there like Voice of the Martyrs where we can talk about uh, and think about and, and reflect upon those in other places in the world who truly are suffering for their faith, who may be in prison, who may be, 
you know, being tortured right now because they're Christians. Now, again, we don't have to deal with much of that in America yet. But we know that there is persecution and there is suffering. And, and there's all that going on in the world today. And John says, I want you to know we share in that. But even though we share in the suffering, we also share in the comfort. Because the Bible teaches that when we go through suffering for the cause of Christ, that the Spirit of God rests upon us and God comforts us in a special way. He doesn't necessarily keep us from suffering because we understand that suffering is actually a part of His plan. Okay? It's a part of a way of purifying our lives and purifying the church and strengthening us. But John wants to remind us, I'm sharing in the suffering. I'm just one of those throughout history who has suffered for the cause of Christ. And so anytime you and I suffer for the cause of Christ, we can remember those like John, a real hero of the faith. Anytime someone persecutes you or says some snide remark about you being a Jesus follower or a lover of Jesus or one of those Christians or whatever, remember John who was exiled on the Isle of Patmos and he says, I share in that suffering as well. Remember, the Bible teaches us that the blood of the martyrs was really the seed of the church. And that every time the church went through tremendous persecution, it also went through tremendous growth. It's almost like the more Satan tried to stamp out the church and the Word of God, the more it thrived. And I guarantee you, when we get to heaven, we're going to hear stories about the underground church from places like India and China and Iraq and Iran and places like that that we just never dreamed how a church was thriving in the midst of all of that suffering and all of that persecution. He also says, I share with you in the kingdom. Because remember, though we go through suffering and persecution now, we must remember and keep our eyes on the fact that we are part of God's kingdom. And even though we literally do not see it here and now, it's coming one day and we're a part of it. Remember something, my friends, if you're a born-again Christian, whatever bad things you go through here on earth, it's the only hell that you will ever know. Think about that in comparison to eternity. It is the only hell that you will ever know. That's why Paul said in Romans 8.18 that I reckon that the sufferings that we suffer now are not going to be worthy to be compared with the glory that will be ours one day. Because he's comparing temporal suffering with eternal glory. And he says it far outweighs it no matter what we endure down here. Keep that kingdom and keep that future glory in mind. Because one of the awesome things that the Bible teaches is this glorified Christ. This God of glory shares His glory with us. He has raised us up, the Bible said, to sit with Him in the heavens and to share His glory that we're going to have one day in heaven. What a great prospect. And we've got to keep our eyes on that. That's why then you'll notice the very next word is we also share in the endurance that are in Jesus. You see... You may be at a point in your life where you say, I can't go on. Or you may know of somebody that they just, they just can't go on. They can't put one foot more in front. Of, they are going through such tough times that they just can't endure. You know where we get our endurance? We get our endurance through our relationship with Jesus. Jesus can help us endure the difficulties and the trials and tribulations that we struggle with down here on earth. Again, God never promised us that we wouldn't have them. He just simply promised, I will give you the grace and the strength that you need to get through them because I'm allowing them so that you will be stronger, so that you will trust in me more, so that you can be a witness to others of the power that can come through a personal relationship with God. And we see that here. In fact, again, I'd like you to turn to the book of Hebrews, to Hebrews chapter 12 this time. 
And this is a great passage of Scripture dealing with endurance, the endurance that is in Jesus. For the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, if I can find it with my fumbling fingers, beginning in verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we must get rid of every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and notice, run with endurance the race set out for us. How do we do that? Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set out for him, he endured the cross. Don't, don't miss that. Jesus knew that there was joy ahead. So the Bible says he could endure the cross because he knew what was coming in the future. And, he, and he's giving us an example, the same kind of example to us. He says, look, I know it might be bad down here. It might get really bad down here. But you and I have to focus on Jesus, and we have to focus on the joy that God has set before us, and heaven, and glory, and all of that ahead, and keep our eyes there. Because notice the Bible goes on to say in verse 2, He disregarded its shame, the cross of shame. He's taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. So the next time we think about giving up, the writer of Hebrews says in verse 3, Think of him who endured such opposition against himself by sinners so that you may not grow weary in your souls and give up. Don't give up. Well, how do we not give up? Through the endurance that's in Jesus. Through keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. Not getting our eyes on our circumstances. Not getting our eyes on other people. Not getting our eyes on all of our troubles and woes. But keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus and seeing him as the ultimate endurer and perseverer and the one that endured so much, even as the Son of God, who did not deserve any of it. And the Bible says, yet he endured. And he can give us that same endurance to make it through, and to not throw in the towel, and not give up. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that's pretty practical. Because how many of us do not struggle at times in our life with just throwing in the towel and giving up? How many of us in here does not know of somebody that this passage brings to mind? Of somebody who's given up, somebody who's throwing in the towel, somebody who's ready to quit. And the Bible says, don't do it. There's an endurance in Jesus Christ. In fact, there's another way to endure. Jesus said in Luke 18, 1, that men are always to pray and not to faint or give up. So prayer is a way that we can keep on going. Just keep pouring your heart out to God. It is a way for us to keep going in the midst of some tough, 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 tough times. All right? So John wants to remind us then, back in Revelation chapter 1, I share with you in persecution, I share with you in this kingdom, I share with you in the endurance, because Jesus is keeping me going too, because I'm here on this Roman penal colony called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony about Jesus Christ. And he said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day when I heard behind me a loud voice, chapter 1, verse 10 of Revelation, like a trumpet. A trumpet was usually used for two things, either a call to battle or a call to worship. And in a sense, we're going to see throughout the book of Revelation, it really is a dual purpose there. It's, it's both. And this, this voice, like a trumpet, said, write in a book what you have seen and send it to these seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, to Tyre, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Why? Because as we saw last week, the church is to be the pillar and ground of God's truth. The church should be the place where if we want to know what the truth is, we should be able to go to church and find God's truth because God gave His truth to His church. 
As I shared last week, though, sad to say, not all churches open up the Bible and study and share God's truth. That's part of the problem today. And the Bible predicted that. The Bible says, in the last days, many will fall away from the faith. They will give heed to seducing spirits and the doctrines of demons and devils. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and be turned aside to fables. The Bible predicts it. It's going to happen. It's what's called the great apostasy. And we're going to talk more about that as we study through the book of Revelation. But the Bible says that God gave his truth to the church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so the the church has this great thing that's been entrusted to it. It's the truth of God and we need to share it and we need to get it out there for other people because in this book are the answers that man is looking for. Not all the answers that he wants to know, but all the answers that he needs to know. And then I want to end with this and then we'll open it up. So I turned to see whose voice was speaking to me, verse 12, and don't miss this. This is the beginning of many visions of the glorified Christ. And again, as I shared last week, if we ever need a vision of the glorified Christ, we need Him today. He's not the same Jesus that was walking the earth back 2,000 years ago. The Jesus that we pray to today, the Jesus that we know personally, the Jesus who did die for our sins, but though was buried and rose from the dead, is the Jesus that John saw here, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 1. I saw a voice speaking to me, and when I did so, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man. Now, I want to just stop there real quick. Son of man was Jesus' favorite description of him. If you read the Gospels, he used the son of man as a title for him more than any other title. He loves that title. Because in that title is both his humanity and his divinity. It is a perfect picture of him. Also, the phrase son of man is a messianic title. If you go back to the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, you will see that the Messiah is called the son of man. No wonder Jesus then used that title. He was just reminding all of his Jewish friends, I'm the Messiah that the Old Testament predicted. I'm the son of man. I am the son of God. This son of man was dressed in a robe extending down to his feet, and he wore a wide golden belt around his chest. His head and his hair were as white as wool, even as white as snow, and his eyes were like a fiery flame. His feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And I couldn't help but think, being from New York, that when you stand, if you ever get a chance to go to Niagara Falls... (laughs) And you hear the thunder of that water roaring over those falls. I can only imagine that that might just be a little bit of how the voice of God sounded to John. He held seven stars in his right hand and a sharp double-edged sword extended out of his mouth. And his face shone like the sun shining at full strength. The Bible says later on in the book of Revelation... That in heaven, in the eternal state, there will be no sun, there will be no stars, there will be no light, except the light of the glory of Jesus will be the light of heaven. That's pretty brilliant. No wonder, John says, when I saw him, 
I fell down at his feet as though I were dead. What an awesome sight. Now again, I nor the Bible am saying it's wrong to picture Jesus the way he walked on the earth. I'm not saying that. I think it's good and healthy to think about Jesus as he walked the earth, as he healed and as he ministered and as he you know, did all those things, as he died on the cross. But we've got to remember something. This is the Jesus. This is the one who is now at the right hand of God. This is the one that we pray to. This, this is the Son of God in all of his glory. And, and, and we've got to remember that, you know. He, he's in control. He's perfectly capable of, he created this universe. The Bible says Jesus also sustains the universe. And he's perfectly capable of handling any problem that this world is going to have because he has a plan for this world, and this world is going to ultimately fulfill that plan. And therefore, again, how can we practically apply this great God to our lives? Because if he is that great, if he is that one, then he can certainly handle anything I can throw at him as well. Okay, so remember that. The next time you're praying and you're asking God for help, this is the God you're praying, this is the God I'm praying to. <laughs> wow, what a great, glorious God. One other thing that came to my mind, and I promise I'm going to open it up. Go back to the book of Ephesians, if you will. I know, my brain just gets going and I get jumping around. And I go, uh, uh. Ephesians chapter 3. And I want to tie this together before I open it up, because we talked about the church and the message of God's truth to His church. And the glorious Christ, well, guess what? His glory is to be seen in the church. His glory is to be seen in the church. Notice what Paul writes here in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to Him, and you know what? Before we read this, I hope that you and I really believe this. I hope you and I really believe this, because you know what? We live what we believe. What we believe determines how we live. And here's what the Bible says. Do we really believe it? Now to him who by the power that is working within us, that same power, by the way, that raised Jesus from the dead, he is able to do far beyond all that we ask or think. All that we ask or think, he, he can even do more. I don't know about you, but I'm a pretty big dreamer. I can think up a lot of things. And God says, oh, I, I can trump that anytime. I'm bigger than that. To him, verse 21, be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. You see, the Bible says that we as the church are to be manifesting the glory of God. Well, how do we do that? By allowing His power, this unlimited, almighty power to flow through our lives, to flow through the life of our church, so that people can see, this is what God does with a group of people who are totally dedicated and committed to Him. Wow! God's at work there. Yes, He is. And then He gets the glory for it, because it's not us. <laughs> We can't take any credit for it. It's not my power that's doing it. It's Him. We can certainly see Him doing this at Cornerstone. My goodness, what He's doing. Just, just today, our staff found out that just from this past Sunday, 
we had like 10 people accept Christ on Sunday and like 10 more people rededicate their lives to Christ. And that's just the ones that filled out the communication cards. Every week it's like that. We're following up with at least 10 people every week who are saying, I found Christ here at this church. Wow. That's just incredible to me. We shouldn't take that for granted. There are a lot of churches in our country that's dying. There's a lot of churches that are having a hard time keeping their doors open. There's a lot of churches that are struggling to get people to come. We're having so many people come, we've got to build a new building over here to house them all. Because we can't, we can't fit them all in here. It's getting to the point here on Tuesday night where uh, a few more people come and what are we going to do? You know, We're going to have to have some kind of outdoor amphitheater or something to house everybody. That's good. Those are good problems to have. But that's what he's talking about here. He can do above and beyond anything we could ever dream or think. And we've got to be willing to, to not then put him in our little box. We've got to be willing to let God be God and say, God, yeah, whatever, you know, just magnify yourself and get the glory for it. Because I understand in your plan, your plan is for you to be glorified in your church as we allow your unlimited power to work in us. And again, going back then to tie it into Revelation, part of that power is contained in his all-powerful word because he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And the writer of Hebrews says his word is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And I'm going to get back to that in just a minute, but I did promise I would open it up. And I'm going to shut up for a few minutes to catch my breath. And to let my mind catch up, too. Any comments or questions? about what we've talked about so far. Yes, Brian. Was this, was John's, um, <clears throat> John's being, <clears throat> excuse me, in the presence of the Lord, a, a, a literal representation while he was on the island of Patmos, or was this a dream he was having, or was this, he was physically transformed into, into heaven? That's a good question. I personally believe it was more of a vision than it was that he was actually taken to heaven to see the glorified Christ. I think that's what he means by I was in the Spirit, and I think in the realm of the Holy Spirit, as the Spirit overwhelmed him, the Holy Spirit gave him a vision of the glorified Christ. Yeah, but good good question. Another, someone else? Yes. Yeah, we both have kind of a question. On, um, well, you know, in Revelations, when you were just reading in um, John was talking about, what is it, um, verse 16, and it talks about, out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. It's, I don't understand what that means. Okay. Very, very good. And I was going to get back to that because it's a very important point. The Bible teaches, and, and this is something we're going to begin to see in the book of Revelation later on, that, that part of Revelation is about God's judgment. Okay. And, and the Bible teaches very clearly that God's judgment is primarily based upon his word. So when the Bible pictures Jesus, this two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, it is primarily a symbolic way of saying that his judgment is going to be based upon his word. Back in the Gospels, when Jesus was here roaming the earth with his disciples, he taught those that were following him, you will be judged by my word. My word will be the judgment. It will be the standard. It will be what people are judged by. So it is, because it is a sort of judgment. And we're going to see this later on. You know, people can, again, they can disregard his word. 
They can throw it aside. That's their choice. But Jesus is simply saying, you're also going to be judged by my word. But there's also another part to that. And that is, you'll notice, it, it, there's a dual, dual purpose of the sword because it's two-edged. It's double-edged. And what that simply means is that Yes, in some ways, the word of God is the sword of judgment for those who reject Christ. But let's not forget that his word is also a source of comfort for those who believe in Christ. It just depends on whether you accept his word or whether you reject his word. And that's part of the dual purpose of his word. You see, for those who reject, his word's going to be a word of judgment. For those who accept, his word's a word of comfort. In fact, that's why then in the very next part of that verse, verse 17, Jesus places his right hand upon John and says, Do not be afraid. Some of the things in Revelation are scary. But they're only scary and they're only fearful if you reject Christ in his word. If you accept Christ in his word, there's nothing to be afraid about. You see, that, that's, that's, what we, that's the message we've got to get out. There's no reason to be afraid, all right? If you accept Christ in his word, that's part of that dual purpose. The same word that brings judgment to others can bring comfort to us. And that's part of what that means as well. But that's a great point and one that we need to talk about. Because, you know, again, if you go back through the Old Testament scriptures of, of prophecy, and again, you listen to the words of Jesus, many, many times he talks about the word, his word, is what's going to judge people one day. And I think that's why the symbol, symbolic picture of the two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yes. The penetrating nature of the sword. And that's even true again for us as believers, because remember that verse I just quoted from Hebrews says, The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the dividing of soul and spirit and gets down to the very innermost part of our being. So in other words, what the Bible says about itself is because it is the supernatural word of God, it can get places where nothing else can get. You know, it, it can get right to the heart of the matter and it can sink down deep into our soul and change us and transform us from within, and nothing else can do that. That's what makes it such a supernatural book. Yes? I was, well, we're ready to move on to the no, no. question. Uh, I was going to ask about why why seven churches and why those seven churches. There were plenty more churches in that time, and why he made those examples. Or... Good point. And, and I, I will touch on that right now before I get to each church. Um, Although I will follow up that a little bit deeper when we get to each church. But the reason was basically, I think, that each church, the number seven is significant in the Bible. Number seven is a number of completion. And so I think it's just a complete representation of the church. And as we study Jesus' message to each church, we find out that this message was not just practical and applicable to them 2,000 years ago, but it's a message for us as his church today. And each church has its strengths and weaknesses. And if you study a map, I would encourage you, I don't have that, oh, this pen is shot. Okay, um, maybe this one will do. If you study a map of, of Asia where those seven churches were, 
they're in order around, like this is Ephesus, and then Smyrna, and Pergamum, and they go like this. They go like in a circle. Is that seven? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay. One more. All right. And then the Isle of Patmos was like right down here off of, off of uh, that part of, of Asia. And, and what it was was each message, like it started at Ephesus, and it goes in this, this direction. And I think it was just, again, in God's wisdom, he picked those churches because they were going to be representative of his church throughout history. And whatever he said to each one of these churches was also going to be applicable to, say, Cornerstone Christian Fellowship in 2006. And so I think he, in his wisdom, picked those churches for those particular reasons. But that's an excellent question and one that, yeah, we'll try to touch on a little bit deeper as we look at each church and take each message of Christ in depth. Anything else? The only thing about the vision that's kind of comical, why the red eyes? Most be like blue. <laughs> well, again, yeah, I think his eyes being a fiery flame is a picture of the penetrating gaze of Christ. Because again, when we get to the message to the seven churches, one of the things that we realize is, again, it, it's portraying his glory. And part of that glory is his omniscience. He knows everything. And the reason he knows everything is because he can see everything. He can see everything. And you know, we always tend to maybe look at that as he sees everything bad. Yeah, but he also sees everything good. And that's part of the commendation that he gives each church. I know the good things that you've done. And that's something that we can take encouragement from too. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but let's remember something. The, the same penetrating gaze that might make us feel uncomfortable at times because we're doing something we shouldn't, is also a comfort to us when we're doing something good, and especially if we've done something good, and we shouldn't be this way, but we might think, gee, I, I did something really good and nobody noticed. Well, you know what? God noticed. God never is going to forget anything good that we've done. The Bible says a cup of cold water that's given in His name to somebody who needs a cup of cold water, God will remember that. And God will reward us for it one day. That's part of that penetrating gaze. So again, just like the dual purpose of his word being a comfort to some and judgment to others, the same thing is true with like his, his glorious attributes like omniscience. Yeah, if we're doing something we shouldn't be doing, that makes us feel uncomfortable. But what about when we're doing something we should be doing? Then that's a comfort. Or when we're going through a tough time and we're going through a real trial, don't we want to know that God knows exactly what we're going through and He sees what we're going through? Sure we do. Just like when God came to Moses and said, I've seen the oppression of my people in Egypt for 400 years and I have come down now to deliver them through you. Go, Moses. I'm sending you to deliver my people. God saw everything that His people went through. He knows. And that's part of that penetrating gaze that He has as the glorified... Son of God. You'll notice if we go back real quick to verse 17, because I want to pick up on this. Real clear. If you don't take anything else away from here tonight, please take this. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. That's the message of Jesus to His church. Don't be afraid. My friends, fear and faith are mutually exclusive. And the Bible says that the just shall live by faith not by fear. And why that's so important is because, let's face it, we live in a world today that is in the grips of fear. People are living in fear. 
People are afraid. People are panicking all the time. I mean, it's even got worse since things like 9-11. I mean, people are just, they live their whole life in fear. And that's so unnecessary. Because if we had a relationship with the glorified God of Revelation, we wouldn't be afraid because we know He's got everything in control. And if He allows something to happen, it had to come through His hand first because He's the glorified King of kings and Lord of lords. Nothing takes Him by surprise. You see, one of the neat things that the Bible teaches us is that if God has us in His hand, that means that anything that touches us had to get through His hand first. And if it got through His hand to us, then that means that there's a purpose behind it, and there's going to be something good out of it, because God has allowed it in His wisdom. And again, part of that glorious nature of God, He's got all wisdom. He's got all the wisdom that there ever has been and ever will be. In fact, the Bible says that all of His wisdom is embodied in Christ, who is the wisdom of God. Do not be afraid, because Jesus says to John, I am the first and the last, the one who lives. I was dead, but look, now I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and of Hades. First of all, he's saying, look, John, I know you're worried about maybe even dying on the Isle of Patmos, but don't worry. I was dead. I'm alive. The worst thing that can happen to you is death. I conquered death. So there's nothing in your life, John, and he could say the same thing, there's nothing in your life that's worse to face the death. I mean, obviously, for all of us, that would have to be the ultimate, death, okay? And Jesus is saying, yeah, I faced that. I, I conquered that, so therefore, you, you don't have to be afraid anymore. That doesn't have to be a problem anymore. Death, as I shared last week, is not the conclusion of our lives. It's a commencement. It's just leaving here and going to live up there. It's not a negative thing. Paul said to be with Christ is far better than anything I could experience here on earth. And Paul could say that because he had been there, and he did have a vision of what heaven was like. In fact, keep your finger there in, in Revelation. We're going to come right back and talk about the keys of death in Hades, and go back again to the book of Hebrews. You knew I was going to go. I, hey, it just happened to work out this way. You know? <laughs> to Hebrews chapter 2. Now you know why I like the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 is where we'll start. And in Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he, speaking of Jesus, likewise shared in their humanity, so that through death he could destroy the one who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and set free those who were held in slavery all their lives by their fear of death. That's part of what he accomplished. Again, not that I want to die, it's not that we want to die. That'd be a little weird. But I don't fear death because I know when I die where I'm going and who I'm going to be with. That was the message of Paul to the, to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he says, look, there's only two kinds of people in this world. Those who have hope and those who have no hope. And Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 that it's okay to sorrow and grieve, but just don't sorrow and grieve like those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, then we also believe that those who died in Christ will come with Him when He comes again and comes down and receives His own in the clouds one day. Talking about the rapture of the church. 
far from missing the rapture, Paul is trying to comfort these believers in Thessalonica that all those who've died in Christ are going to come back with Jesus. And then Paul ends by saying, so shall we ever be with the Lord. There's going to be this great reunion with all the saints of all time, and Jesus is going to be there, and it's going to be a great time. So he says, encourage each other with these words. Comfort one another with these words. The word of God is a comfort. Because it portrays who Christ is and what He's done for us and the fact that we don't have to fear. And He came to conquer death so that we don't have to live our whole lives in fear of death and in fear of terrorists and in fear of this and in fear of that. Because He's in control. And if He allowed it, it's going to happen. You know, I've always shared, I am safer in God's will some place maybe where other people would say, you're putting yourself in harm's way, than I am right here in my own home in the comfort of my living room, living outside of God's will. Because God's in control. He is the glorified Christ that we had portrayed here in Revelation chapter 1. And then if you go back to verse 18, when Jesus said to John, I hold the keys of death and Hades, he's simply saying, I have authority over that. Because that's what keys represent. You have a key of something... That means you're in charge of it. You, you've got the authority over it. And he says, I have the keys of death in Hades. So I have the keys, I have the authority over death, and I have the authority over after death. Because that's what Hades represents, after death. Which then also teaches, there is something after death. See, there's a lot of people that believe that I live my life, I die, that's it. They put me in the ground, and that's the end of me. And the Bible says, no, 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 no. There is so much more than just this life. And Jesus has authority over it. He has authority over death and over everything that happens after death. So don't be afraid, he says to John. And he's saying to us, to his church, don't be afraid. And he's saying to us as a church, get that message out. The people of this world need to hear. You don't need to live your lives in fear. You can know Christ and you can know His Word and you can be comforted by His Word because His Word is a comfort to us if we know and trust in His Word. The Bible says the Lord is our strong tower. He's a refuge in whom we can take shelter. I mean, so many images we could, we could portray even out of the Old Testament about how comforting it is to know God and to know He's there for us and He's watching over us with that penetrating gaze and He's protecting us. I personally believe, and then I'm going to stop for just a moment to catch my breath again, that there have been many times in my life where God has protected me from some harm, and I didn't even realize it. I didn't even know it. In fact, there have been times where, you know, I was upset because I was delayed. You don't, want to get behind, you don't want to get in front of me when I'm delayed. Boy, I'm not, you know. And then I saw an accident up in front of me. And I wondered, gee, you know, God, maybe the reason why I was delayed a few minutes was... You prevented me from being a part of that. And that's just the things that I know. How about the things that I don't know? That God has somehow spared me, protected me, provided for me, and I was just clueless, but out of his goodness and mercy. Because remember something, folks. Someone might ask, when you keep talking about the glory of God, the glory of God, the glory, what really is the glory of God? Well, one thing we know for sure the Bible teaches the glory, it's his goodness. Because remember when Moses back in Exodus 33 says, God, show me your glory. And the very next verse says, and the goodness of God passed by Moses. It was his goodness that Moses saw. And that's part of that manifestation. We've got to get that out. God's a good God. 
There are people today that don't believe that. They don't, they don't, you know, God's not a good God. If God was a good God, this would be there. Yeah, God's a good God. But we just have to trust. Again, we have to walk by faith in his word and not by sight, the Bible says. His goodness is part of his glory. Before we wrap up chapter 1, anything else? Yes. Um, you said, like, fear of terror. Mm-hmm. It all went to the hand of God. Um, so are you saying that like, that kind of stuff was invented by him? That he meant for this to happen? Or I kind of thought Satan was doing it and that God let it happen. No, no. The Bible clearly teaches evil and God are mutually exclusive. If God had any kind of evil connected to him, he would not be holy and therefore he would cease to be God. Yeah, so I'm saying Satan did it, but God said, okay, I'm going to let this happen and let's see if you people have the faith. Well, yeah, and the reason why God has to let that happen, I sort of touched on that a little bit last week, is because God has given us a free will. And God gives terrorists a free will. And the only way for God to prevent evil from happening in this world or in our lives at the hands of other people is to take away our free will and make us robots and make us do good all the time. You can't have it both ways. If we want free will and we want to be able to have the choice to serve God and to do good, then we also have to acknowledge that God also has to give people the choice to do evil. It's the same choice. It's the same choice. And that's why people have a problem, because they say, well, well, yeah, but if God was such a good God, he's a good God. But there's evil in this world. And evil is part of the plan in the sense that we have to understand when sin came into the picture, that was going to be the way it ended up. And that's why God sent Jesus Christ, to be the remedy for sin. And that's why God gave us a book like Revelation to end the Bible with. Because what the book of Revelation shows for us very clearly is it's not going to be like this forever. He's not going to let terrorism and wickedness and evil and people doing evil things and murder and all of this to go on and on and on infinitum. He's going to put a stop to it one day. And he's going to come back to earth and he's going to judge the world in righteousness, and he's going to set up his kingdom on this earth. And I'm getting ahead of myself, but there's going to come a point in the eternal state where we don't have to worry about that anymore, because he's going to put all that to rest, and his justice is going to stamp out all that. But until then, our earth and the world in which we live is just simply suffering the effects of man's free will, and part of that free will is being able to choose evil just like we choose good. Yes? Right. And the Bible says, though, when sin entered the world, that sin also affected the earth, the physical earth. In the book of Romans, the earth is groaning. The, the earth is is under the effects of sin, and therefore things like underwater earthquakes, which cause tsunamis and volcanoes erupting and things like that, and again, them happening more frequently, is all part of the signs we talked about last week that tell us that his return is getting closer. And it's a way for God to say to people, though he doesn't cause it, in a sense, but he allows it, 
because he's trying to get people's attention and say, this life isn't all there is, and life is fragile, and we don't have the promise of tomorrow, and you should believe in me and trust in me. All right? But that, I mean, excellent stuff. We, we need to process through those kind of things. Yes? Okay, this is the thing that confuses me. If God is the same all the time, yesterday, today, and tomorrow, then God of, the, of the, te- the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. And if that God went around letting armies defeat, you know, other armies so that his people would be punished or things would, you know, would come out, the way he wanted them to come out, since he controls history, back to that again, then how can you say that evil is separate from God now? I mean, God was making those decisions for the Babylonians to come, and for the Jews to be exiled for 40 mm-hmm. years. I mean, he made those decisions, and if you look upon those, they seem evil. They seem... Actually, they were acts of mercy, because God was taking care of something that was going to, to continue to destroy and wipe out even more lives. It's sort of like when you have cancer, you have, you have cancer, going in and having an operation is a painful thing, terrible thing, and terrible to recover from any kind of surgery, painful. But if you get that out, then that, that's very good down the road. And what God was doing is many of these societies, and he had given them many, many years to try to turn to him and repent. He had sent people like Jonah the prophet to Nineveh, and they did repent, so they were okay. He was trying to tell them, look, if you don't continue this wickedness and you turn to me, I'll bless you. But if you continue to sacrifice your children to gods that aren't even gods, and you have all these idolatry, and you do all these wicked things in the name of God, then I'm going to come and I'm going to to in a sense, yeah, judge you because his judgment is a judgment upon this sin that's not only affecting them but could affect generations upon generations upon generations. So I look at when God did step into history and use these nations against each other and whatever to to bring about his judgment, they were actually acts of mercy uh, to prevent the wickedness from continuing down the line. I mean, it's... Again, stuff we've got to process through. Yeah. The problem we're going to have in theology is, again, that problem of trust. It really comes down to, am I going to trust God, or am I going to not trust God? Do I really believe what the Bible says about him as he reveals it to me, or am I going to not trust it? And that's what it really comes down to. And I know that when we look at sometimes the way things are, we not only might question God's goodness, we might question God's wisdom. But again, we're not supposed to walk by sight, we're supposed to walk by faith and trust in His Word and keep believing even sometimes when it doesn't look like Because again, He's the glorified Christ. He's the glorified God who's in absolute control. Good stuff. Stuff we've got re- to wrestle with it, you know? And I don't, you know, I, I'm certainly not saying I, I have all the answers or anything like that. I've wrestled, you know, I've wrestled with things with God and I still do. But there does come a point where I say, you know what, God, I don't understand. You haven't chosen to reveal why, but I'm just going to trust you for it and just keep moving on. Sometimes that's what we've got to do. Yeah. In fact, I, 
one of the things I try to keep in my mind is that the, the idea that God really does set before us the fact that can we trust a God we don't always understand? Can we follow a God we don't always understand? You see, again, going back to Deuteronomy 29, 29, the verse we looked at at the very beginning last week, talking about revelation, secret things belong to God and those that he does choose to reveal to us. Obviously he does, but he doesn't reveal everything to us. Is the fact that there's a couple things in there, but, but one of the things I wanted to point out, you know, if we understood everything that God did, what's the ultimate conclusion of that? We'd be God. If I understood everything that God did, I'd be God. And I'm not going to be God. I'm never going to be God. Never. So, again, you know, there's always that separation between God and everything that He's created. And that's why we have to choose to focus on the things that He does want us to know and trust the things that for some reason He just chose not to tell us because again the things that we need to know for sure are in here things we don't need to know for sure but we're just curious about he chose not to put in here yeah that's why people say well why isn't there anything in the bible about jesus being from like age 12 to age 30 because we didn't need to know that we might want to know and one day when we get to heaven maybe god maybe jesus himself will say that i'll tell you what i was like when i was 15 or something like that (laughs) But for right now, to get by in this world and to have a relationship with God and to know all the things we need to know, that was just something that we didn't need to know. You know? The seven churches, verse chapter 2 and 3, and the things that are coming in the future begin in chapter 4 through chapter 22. That's why I shared last week, too. That's why we're going to spend a little bit more time at the front end of this book. Because when you want to talk about practical application, this message to the seven churches... We're the church. We need to hear what Jesus has to say to his church because that's us. And that applies to just the here and now, not just wanting to know about things that's going to happen in the future. That's good, but I'm not trying to get too far ahead of myself. But from chapter 4 on, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're not a part of that. I'm not a part of that. That all takes place on the earth after we are raptured out of here and go to heaven. Okay? That's what's called the Great Tribulation, and the church is not part of the Great Tribulation. I'll tell you why I believe that, but part of it is because after chapter 3, guess what? There's no mention of the church. And that's why I disagree with those who teach that the church will go through the entire tribulation or go through part of the tribulation. The book of Revelation never mentions the church after chapter 3. So when chapter 4, when all these future events begin you have no mention of the church. Plus, there's obviously other passages of Scripture where Jesus himself tells his followers, if you follow me, you will be kept from the tribulation. Okay? I think it's pretty clear cut. But, the other point I want to make is this. Verse 20. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. If you want to know, a lot of times people, because people come to Revelation, Revelation has all these symbols in it. I can't understand it. Well, a lot of times the symbols are explained for us if you just keep reading. Because back earlier in chapter 1, he talked about these seven stars and these seven lampstands. Well, guess what? In verse 20, Jesus explains to us what they are. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand that he talked about 
earlier on, the seven and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels or messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. There you go. Jesus explains what the seven stars and the seven lampstands are, and with that then we go in then to chapter 2, talking about the seven lampstands, which are a beautiful picture of the church. Why? Because I want to end with this tonight. We're to be light. That's why Jesus, of all the symbols that he could use to picture his church as, he chose a lampstand. Because we are light bearers. In Matthew 5.14, Jesus told his followers, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on the hill cannot be hidden. Therefore, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And what? Glorify your Father in heaven. Going back to that glory again. You see, we are the light of the world. And the church is to be the light. The light. Yeah. You think if every one of those churches had an angel, that every church today has an angel? Boy, that's a good question. <laughs> and the reason that's a good question is, we have to wrestle with how we interpret the word angel. The word angel isn't always interpreted as an angelic being. It can be used in the Bible as a human messenger. And I tend to interpret the word angel, angelos, messenger, that's just the essence of what it means in the Greek, as the human messenger that will take this message to each church. Now let me give you a biblical example of that. So you say, wait a minute. In the Gospels, when they're talking about John the Baptist as the forerunner of Christ who would come and prepare the way of the Lord, and be the messenger that would go before the coming of Christ for his earthly ministry, that same Greek word is used. The word angel. Now it's not translated angel in the Gospels, it's translated forerunner, or it's translated messenger, but it is the Greek word angelos, angel, which in its essence just simply means messenger. Okay? But that's an excellent question, and that's one where, you know, you... Now, I'm not saying that churches can't have an angel sort of over them to sort of watch over them and, you know, be an emissary back to God. That's not unbiblical, because we know that there are angels that have certain responsibilities here on earth and whatever. But I tend to look at that <coughs> word more as a human messenger that will take the message that John's going to give to each church back to the church so that the angel or messenger to the church of Ephesus is going to deliver that message from John, ultimately from Christ to John, to the church and then ultimately to us in the book of Revelation. Wow, good stuff tonight. This, uh, you guys... <laughs> no, I just, you know, I, I hope... Well... Keep praying for me. <laughs> Keep praying for me. I, I hope you guys are enjoying this. Really, I do. Love you guys. And look forward to it. And again, you know, we're, we're going to wrestle and tackle some things. You know, that's, that's part of it. That, that's good. That's not, that's not bad. You know? Uh, there's no easy answers to some things. But you know what? Hopefully the mind 
Each Tuesday night will be a jumping off point, if nothing else, for you to do some of your own individual study and reading of the Word of God and just get excited about it. Because I don't know about you, but I get a little excited about it. I really do. We couldn't tell. Let's close in prayer and I'll let you folks go because, man, it got hot in here. Woo! Maybe it's all that hot air coming from the front here. Right? All right, let's pray. Father, we want to, before we leave here tonight, just thank you for revealing the things that you have to us. You wouldn't have had to reveal what you did. And, Father, I want to leave here tonight just seeing your son high and lifted up all of his glory and remember the Lord that all the stuff that's going on in the world and all the stuff that I go through Father that I have a God who is so great that I can take all this stuff to and I, I can talk about it with and I can cast my cares on you because Lord you want to be my burden bearer and you don't want me to carry these things around myself and, and, and that I can share with people don't need to be afraid, and you don't need to live your life in fear, you don't need to fear death, and Father, there's so much in here that we can apply, just help us, Lord, to be those priests that offer that sacrifice of praise, and to do good, and to share, and help us to offer sacrifices that are well-pleasing to you, and just leave this room tonight, again, just filled with the, with the vision of the glorified Christ, knowing that, Father, you are so great whatever comes into my life, I know that you are a God that can handle it, and you can deal with it, and you can see me through and give me the endurance to not throw in the towel and to give up, and also to share that endurance with others, and come alongside of them and say, hey, you can keep on going. Let Jesus help you keep on going. Father, there's so many hurting people in this world, and there may be so many hurting people in this room tonight that just need encouraged, and I pray that throughout all the stuff that we talked about, and we talked about some deep stuff, because that's what the mind is all about, digging deep into God's Word, that, that we can take away, though, Lord, some real encouragement and things that refresh us and uplift us each and every week, and that we can leave here, Lord, with our heads held high, and, and just so glad that we know You, and so glad that we have Your Word to be a comfort and an encouragement to us throughout our week ahead. Father, go with us, we, I pray, and just take us all home safely and bring us all back next Tuesday night. And maybe, Lord, even help us to invite somebody with us. We'll make room for them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. You're great. Thank you.